As we closed last time, we were in Deuteronomy chapter 18, um, uh, verses 9 through 14. We had just discussed, as Israel was forbidden from practicing the kind of things that the other nations used to inquire of their God. They inquired of God by soothsaying, by having their children pass through the fire, by things of that nature. And God said in verse 14, they listen to those that practice such things, but you're not allowed to listen to them. You're not allowed to. But in contrast to listening to these means, the way God is going to communicate with his people is through his prophet. That's, so they're not to listen to the, the soothsayers and the people involved in magical practices, but they are to listen to the prophet. And let's read verses 15 through 22. And these are some of the most far-reaching passages, really, in all of the Pentateuch, because um, all through the rest of Scripture, it will deal with the implications of this. In verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that he has asked, that, that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly. Saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will acquire it for him. But the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of another God, that prophet shall die. You, shall, you may say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. In contrast to speaking through those who practice magic, the Bible says the Lord will raise up a prophet. Now I think it's significant here, it's interesting I should say, that the word prophet is singular. But I do believe that we'll see it refers to a line of prophets that the Lord will raise up. But right now, I want you to notice verses 16 and, six, 16 and 17. Why was the Lord going to communicate? Why was he going to communicate through a prophet? Why prophets as the method of communication? The Bible says in here in 18 verses 16 and 17, when the Lord spoke directly from heaven, that 
was too much. The people said, do not speak to us or we will die. Let Moses speak to us. We read about that in Exodus 19, verses 16 through 19, where you see the mountain going up with smoke and the thunder and the lightning. And they make the request to Moses in Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. In Deuteronomy 5, verses 22-33, you have that account revealed again. So all of these show if the Lord spoke directly from heaven, it would overwhelm the people and they would die. So they asked that there be a mediator who reveals his words to them. And that's fulfilled in Moses' lifetime through Moses. Now, how is God going to communicate through the prophet? Well, verses 18 and 19 tell us a little bit about the prophet and what God will do with them. First of all, the prophet is one from among your countrymen in verse 18. Just like the king in 1715, the prophet is one of their own uh, native citizen. And God says, I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak all that I command him. We're going to come back and emphasize that in a moment. (coughs) Not only is it important for the prophet to speak exactly what God has spoken, but it is also important for the people to listen carefully. In verse 19, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the prophet is to speak in God's name. And if you don't listen to God's name, you are don't listen to God's word through the prophet. The penalty is being cut off. Remember back in chapter 17 and verse 12, that if you didn't listen to God's judgment through the priest and the judges, that there also the penalty was death. Here God says, I will cut them off. Prophets had a lot of power to speak God's... I mean, if, if, you were, if you were the means of communicating with God, there was a lot of power in that position. And what if the office was corrupted? Now, I think verse 20 reveals to us that there are a couple of levels of people who are false prophets. Um, let's see. First of all, the easiest test of whether someone was a false prophet or whether someone spoke what was right is stated in verse 20, the prophet who speaks, the prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is a false prophet. We're going to call this, I guess, just two levels of a false prophet. I'm going to number it to make it a little bit clearer. But a prophet who spoke in the name of another God. Where can you think of 
some instances, an instance or some instances in Old Testament history where you see this. You have prophets speaking in the name of false gods. Prophets of Baal is probably the most well-known case in 1 Kings 18. In 1 Kings 18, you have Elijah standing alone as a prophet of the Lord. And you have 450 prophets of Baal. And they are cutting themselves and they are crying out to Baal. And, And that test was easier, wasn't it? Because you knew right off the surface... Right on the surface, if someone came and said, thus says Baal, you knew that he was not speaking for the true God. Now, where have we seen that subject brought up in Deuteronomy? Where was that subject brought up in Deuteronomy? Yeah, 13. 13, Deuteronomy 13, and you that Bob would know that because he was teaching that Sunday. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. If a prophet did a sign or wonder that came true, but that then he encouraged you to worship other gods, he was still a false prophet and was still subject to the death penalty. Okay? That is easier to describe. But also in verse 20. The Bible says another thing. The Bible says the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name. Here, a false prophet speaks in the name of the Lord. You have not a clear case of one speaking in the name of the Lord or Yahweh and another speaking in the name of Baal or some other god. It's not as clear. You have two prophets, perhaps, if they're in debate, who are speaking in the name of the Lord. And both claim that the message is from Him. Now, can you remember a case in the Old Testament where you see a couple of prophets arguing, and this is the circumstance? Yes, well, 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 (laughs) uh, but Jeremiah 37 and 38, you have a conflict between Jeremiah and Hananiah. And remember what has happened is first, Jeremiah has worn an iron, uh, no, he wasn't iron at first. It was first, he just wore a yoke. He wore a yoke and he says, all nations have to submit themselves to the yoke of Babylon. And he says that you're going to be going into that Babylonian captivity for a good while. Haniah, the prophet, comes to Jeremiah. He takes that yoke and he breaks the yoke. And he says, thus says the Lord, within two years, all the items that have been carried off to Babylon are going to come back. Now this is in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 27, you see Jeremiah beginning to act this out, but also Jeremiah 28, that Haniah appears on the scene. Now what I want us to notice for our purposes is Hananiah, this false prophet, says, thus says the Lord. He introduces his message 
the same way that Jeremiah does. And you see this in Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. In verse 11, Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, Thus says the Lord, even so I will break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar from all of the nations that Jeremiah went his way. So in Jeremiah 28, verse 2, verse 11, Hananiah says, Thus says the Lord. But also... Jeremiah introduces his message the same way. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord as well. You see that in 28, verse 13, verse uh, 13, and verse 14, and verse 16. So, let, let me again set this context, if you're not as familiar with it. Okay. Jeremiah is saying we're going to be in Babylonian captivity a while as a punishment for our sin. And I is saying, no, no. God's going to break the yoke of the king of Babylon within two years. Within two years, none of these nations are going to be subject to him. Jeremiah often preaches his message by some way acting out his message. And he's wearing this, this yoke. Haniah broke it and says, this is what the Lord says, I've broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. And what Sarah was referring to earlier was the fact that at the end, Jeremiah says, you have broken a yoke of wood and you have gotten a yoke of iron in its place. Tony? Well, the problem, though, that you arise here is you've got two prophets and same speaking for God. How are the people to know then? And I think it's the situation at the very end of that chapter, though, is... Yes. That he, Jeremiah tell. Oh, there you go. You gotta. Well, you gotta, thing you like, gotta set me up. Now you're, you're doing well so far. But so yeah, I'll leave with that. But <laughs> but that's the thing, though. It's like, how are they supposed to know until it doesn't transpire? That is that is a very good question because there were some cases where it wasn't easy to make a decision. Here is a disappearing people preaching about the same event. One say we're going to come back from captivity right away. And the one says, we're going to be there for a while. And the people are called to make a decision before the event transpires. You're right, Tony. It wasn't easy. But what happens to show who is speaking the truth? What is the proof in the book of Deuteronomy? In Deuteronomy 18. What is the evidence that a fault that someone is a false prophet? Someone hasn't spoken what's right. What's the evidence of that? It doesn't happen. Their word doesn't come true. Now, Haniah has preached this message. He has preached this message. And all of this takes place, according to Jeremiah 28, verse 1, in the fifth month. The fifth month. And what does happen to set all this up? Tony, what does Jeremiah, when he comes back, you know, what does he tell him? He tells him that he'll die by the end of the year. He's going to die by the end of the year. He not only dies by the end of the year, he dies a mere two months 
later, if you look at the last couple of verses, he dies in the seventh month. He made these prophecies in the fifth month. He dies in the seventh month. Now, at that point, I can understand some people maybe being in limbo. When Haniah dies, as Jeremiah told him that he would, isn't that, in this context, pretty strong evidence that the Lord is giving as to who is speaking the truth and who is not speaking the truth. And when you have a case where both prophets speak in the name of the Lord, the way that you distinguish it is the word of the prophet that didn't come true was a false prophet. The word of the prophet that did come true was the true prophet. Now, to give you some examples of people whose prophecies were fulfilled, remember 1 Samuel chapter 3, 19 through 21. All Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And none of his words fell to the ground. All of his words were fulfilled according to 1 Samuel 3, 19 through 21. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, when we're first introduced to Saul, and Saul is looking for his father's donkey, his servant says, let's go to the man of God. And he says in 1 Samuel chapter 9 verse 6, everything he says comes true. Well, that's a sign of a true prophet, isn't it? Everything he says comes true. Now, third example. And I love this story, and I hesitate to go into much depth because we uh, don't have much time. But you remember in 1 Kings 22, when Micaiah is called to prophesy, when Ahab wants to go to war and take Ramoth Gilead, and Jehoshaphat says, isn't there a prophet we can inquire of? And uh, they bring 400 prophets. Ahab has 400 prophets right there who tell him exactly what he wants to hear. Go on up and take Ramoth Gilead. And Jehoshaphat is suspicious and he says, Isn't there yet a prophet of the Lord that we can inquire of him? And he says, There's one. There's Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him because he always says bad things about me. He never says anything good. And Jehoshaphat says, Oh, the king shouldn't say that. So they bring Micaiah in, and when they bring Micaiah in, Micaiah, they tell Micaiah, says, Micaiah, listen, all the other prophets have told Ahab to go up and take Ramoth Gilead. We sure would appreciate it if you say the same thing. And he said, I can only say what the Lord puts in his mouth, my mouth. The text tells us that in 1 Kings 22, when Ahab calls him in, Micaiah says, go up. The Lord will give it into your hands. Now, I don't know what tone of voice we use. But the king knows he's not serious. And the king says, how many times do I have to tell you to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? He said, you want the truth? The truth is, I saw all Israel like sheep without a shepherd. They didn't need anyone to interpret that. The king instantly knew what it meant. And he turns to Jehoshaphat and says, I told you he always said bad things about me. He doesn't say anything good about me. But remember when that scene ends, he says, put Micaiah in prison and feed him with bread and water until I return. 
And Micaiah says, if you return, the Lord has not spoken by me. The point is, the proof that I'm a true prophet will be seen when my words are fulfilled. That was 1 Kings 22, about verses 26 to 28, where he says, if um, the Lord will speak, um, if, if this doesn't come true, then the Lord hasn't spoken by me. Now, so the consequences for speaking falsely in the name of God, according to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 22, uh, is, uh, or verse 20, is that prophet shall die. So it's a pretty serious responsibility to speak falsely of God. Now I want to do something else with this passage. What is the fulfillment of this passage. And this is a um, these are two lines that get further and further apart. So God gives this word in Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 through 22. I would say these words have a level of fulfillment in Old Testament prophets. Um, let's use Jeremiah for an example. Look in Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah 1, and verse 7 and verse 9. Keep your Bible open to Deuteronomy 18. But in Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah 1, in verse 9, the Bible says, The Lord stretched out His hand and touched my mouth, touched Jeremiah's mouth, and the Lord said, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Did you notice those are the same thing, the same thing God said in Deuteronomy 18, 18, about the prophet he would raise up? I will put my words in his mouth. Behold, I have put my words in his, put my words in your mouth, God says to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1, in verse 9, the words of Deuteronomy 18 are fulfilled here. Also, remember in Deuteronomy 18 that the prophet was told that he must speak everything that God has told him to speak. Deuteronomy 18, 18, he shall speak to them all that I command him. God said in Jeremiah 1 verse 7, Behold, I have said, Behold, the Lord, but the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. When Jeremiah is called to be a prophet here, in, in Jeremiah 1, the wording intentionally echoes. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 18. And I think what the Lord is showing is that in prophets like Jeremiah and prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and all this line of prophets from the Old Testament, that God is fulfilling His Word and communicating His message, that God is raising up prophets through whom to speak His Word. Now, you also see when Ezekiel was called. 
Remember when Ezekiel was called, Ezekiel was called to eat the bull. Well, that seems like it's God putting his words in his mouth. And then Ezekiel was told, speak my words to the people. So God is giving him his words. God is putting his words in his mouth. Then he is speaking those words. These verses had a level of fulfillment in these prophets. Now, why, Josh, Josh Sayer, back there, why would I draw the line further apart like that? <laughs> you, you can't remember? Well, Josh, Josh was one who said he liked to do that in college. So, so uh, he's, he's, uh, just, Isaiah, what would the reason be? Okay, there's a greater fulfillment that is coming in Jesus. It has a level of fulfillment in these Old Testament prophets, but it's going to have a greater level of fulfillment in Jesus. In Matthew 21, in Matthew 21, when Jesus is, is entering the city of Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, in verse 9, the crowd going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. He is, as was said of John the Baptist, more than a prophet. But yes, he is a prophet. Remember, too, when Jesus was at the um, Mount of Transfiguration, the voice from heaven says, This is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. Now, the first part of this, this is my son whom I have chosen, that was also said at Jesus' baptism. It was also said at his baptism. But that part, listen to him, listen to him, that is unique to the transfiguration. That was not said at the baptism of Jesus. Listen to him. Those words go back to Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. I'll raise up a prophet from among you, and you shall listen to him. The point, Jesus is the prophet who fulfills the longings of Deuteronomy 18. That is most clearly stated in Acts 3, 22 and 23, where Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19 are quoted, and the Bible says the one who does not listen to the prophet would be cut off from among the people. Now, we haven't gotten to as quickly as we've run through Deuteronomy to stop at every point and to say, Jesus fulfills this in the New Testament. But... Remember, we're stressing how much he fulfills of the Old Testament. So it is true of many times that we haven't emphasized it. This was so plain. This is quoted directly in Acts 3. And I thought that we should make reference to it. Now, what questions do you have?
Tony, did I cut off anything else you say? I was preaching, you were preaching my point there. Uh, nothing else. Anything else that you all have? Yes. In trying to determine whether a prophet is a true prophet or not, in life where you may not have a fulfillment in time, one thing that they would do like we are going to do is to search the scriptures. If he's saying something that is contrary to what God has already said, then he would not be a true prophet. And wouldn't God, hasn't God all along been telling him what's going to happen? You see that in Ezekiel 13, um, peace, peace, where there is no peace, it's stated in Jeremiah 6, 14, and 8, 11, I believe. You remember the days, I'll tell you something that really ties in with what Paul is saying. Do you remember the prophet who came to Jeroboam's altar? Jeroboam has just set up the altar. It seems like it's opening day at the altar. And this prophet, this man of God from Judah, his unnamed, comes. He speaks against the altar. And he says, there's going to be a king born who's going to burn priest bones on this altar. And his name is Josiah. Jeroboam says, arrest him. But he says, a sign of this is going to be that the altar is going to open up, split, and all the ashes will pour out. That happened. That happened. And when Jeroboam put out his hand and said, arrest him, he couldn't draw his hand back to his body. He asked the man of God to pray for him, and he, his hand is restored. Then he says, come home and eat with me. He has changed from being an opponent of this man to now recognizing this man must be from God. And he gives a gracious invitation. But the prophet knows he can't take it. He said, God told me not to eat bread or drink water in this place, nor to come again by the same way, to return by the same way I came. And so he leaves. But another prophet finds him. Another prophet says, come home and eat with me. He repeats the same thing he'd said before. God told me not to eat bread, not to drink water in this place. But the man says, I am a prophet as you are. And an angel of God told me to bring him home to eat with me. The Bible says he lied to me. What was his experience? That he knew what God had said to him. He knew what God had said to him. And he should have stood on it. In spite of... I think the amazing thing is when you read that whole story, I think that the old prophet really did respect that other man, but he told him something that destroyed him because he went contrary to God's message. And the way we stand in line with these noble characters is just to speak his message. Anything else? Um, I did not intend that to happen as, as, as long as it was. Deuteronomy 19, verses 1 through 13. Deuteronomy 19 talks about cities of refuge. 
cities of refuge. Um, But Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 19, cities of refuge. Now here is our map of the land of Israel. How many cities of refuge were there? Six. Okay, this is the Jordan, as anybody can see. Uh, this is the Jordan, and you had three on this side. Three cities on this side. Now, those cities have already been assigned in Deuteronomy 4, verse 41 through 43. Those cities are already uh, mentioned. This text will talk about three cities of refuge. And it is not contradicting the six. It is looking for three on this side of the Jordan as you have three on the other side of the Jordan. I think it's verse 2 of Deuteronomy 19 and verse 7 that both mention three of these cities. Now, you read more about these cities of refuge in Deuteronomy 4. You read more about them in Numbers 35. Numbers 35, there's a long section on them in verses 9 to 34. And then also in Joshua 20, Joshua 20 is the assignment of the land. It only has nine verses, but there you see uh, the, uh, the cities of refuge that came to the people. Let's, let's read these cities quickly. Notice the emphasis on the fact that the Lord gave Israel the land. In verse in verse 1, when the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God gives you, and you dispossess them and settle in their cities and in their houses, you shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which the Lord your God gives you to possess. You shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land which the Lord your God will give you as a possession so that any manslayer may flee there. Now this is the case of the manslayer who may flee there and live when he kills his friend unintentionally not hating him previously. As when a man goes into the forest with his friend to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree and the iron slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Otherwise, the avenger of the Lord may pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger and overtake him because the way is long and take his life though he was not deserving of death since he had not hated him previously. Okay, so what we see here in 19, in verses 1 through 6, we see in verse 4 and verse 6 some of the qualifications he had, he had not hated him previously. So the past relationship between these people is important, isn't it? And he gives in 19.5 an illustration of what counts as manslaughter and not murder. You're out in the woods 
cutting, you're out in the woods, cutting trees, cutting wood with a friend. Your axe head flies off and hits the other person. It hits him in the head and kills him. You're not a murderer in that case. The person was your friend. You were out there cutting wood with him. Uh, but what you did is you had to flee to the cities of refuge. They, they made the roads to these cities, uh, the, the way to these cities uh, was made accessible so that someone who had done something like that could stay in these cities. But it wasn't to be a safe haven for murderers. He gives an illustration of what murder is in verse 11. If there is a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities. So here you have an illustration of what counted in the text calls it um, manslaughter or a manslayer. You have an illustration of that. But in 1911, you also have an illustration of what is described as murder. In this particular case, when someone hated him, when he was lying in wait for him, when he rises up against him, and the cities of refuge are not meant to shield cold-blooded murder. It's not meant to do that at all. In verse 12, the elders of the city shall send and take him from there, deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. So the elders of his city, wherever this crime happened, they know it, they know the story behind it, they send, they extradite him, in effect, bring him back, and he is put to death. And the Bible says, you shall not pity him, but you purge Purge the blood of the east from Israel, that it may go well with him. Now, God says something here that is really interesting. God says, if the Lord enlarges your territory and you walk in his ways and are faithful, I'll give you three more cities. Now, I don't think there he's referring to these three cities on the other side of the Jordan, on the east of the Jordan. I think he is referring to these, this side of the Jordan. He says, if you're faithful and you receive all the land, I'll give you three more cities, which would in, finally equal nine cities of refuge. Now, the fact that you only have six cities of refuge mentioned shows us people weren't obedient and the territory wasn't enlarged. We've encountered something like that before in Deuteronomy happened. If they're faithful, there will be no poor among you. Deuteronomy 15.4. But there was. There were poor among them. Numbers 35 is the most extensive explanation of these cities of refuge. It also gives what crimes qualify as murder and what crimes qualify as manslaughter. Does anyone else have a thought there or a question? Tony? So, we'll get to this later in chapter 22 with building a parapet on your roof so that if someone falls off your roof, you're not guilty of bloodshed. But that seems like an accident also. 
does yeah. not. And so yeah. would someone even in that situation be able to run to a city of refuge? Or let's let's wait till we get there. I, I thought about that verse today as well, but I need to look back and see uh, carefully if there's anything stated of the consequences in that context, whether it's a capital crime. But you're yeah, right. I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, is, is God trying to enact, you know, that He expects a little bit more responsibility than, uh, well, here it would be a situation of negligence. You know, there's a situation where someone. They knew that the axe head kind of flies off their handle off, often enough that uh, maybe if there was a problem. Yeah, I'm just saying, though, that there's situations well, where there's still negligence. You do find that kind of legislation in Exodus 21, verses 28 through 32. They Remember, know, like, their animals gonna, if they knew that the ox go to it, yeah. if there was a more severe penalty, then if they did not know that. So that's a good point. And. Uh, but God does expect some kind of effort to protect life. But, but um, that's, that's good that you know the passage. Let's, let's wait till we get to Deuteronomy 22, 28. And maybe if everything works right, Bob will have that passage. Uh, but then in verse 14, and by the way, also Deuteronomy, uh, Numbers 35 talks more about the blood of the injured, who is mentioned in verse 4 and verse 6. But Deuteronomy 19 14, you shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set, in your inheritance which you shall inherit in the land which the Lord your God has given you. So, when you had your family possession of land, 1914, do not move your neighbor's boundary. Do not move your neighbor's boundary. This law, which we would think is simple, basic morality, is mentioned again in 27.17, excuse me, that it's also mentioned a couple of times in the book of Proverbs. I believe it's Proverbs 22, um, verse 28, 23, verse 10, in Hosea 5 and verse 10. If your neighbor secretly keeps moving your boundary stone over, you know, pretty soon you thought, you know, I, I was sure that key was on my But, wow, I just must have forgotten. Um, but because this is something that may not be noticed by your neighbor. But this is a way to do, to practice dishonesty that might result in them having less to live on. So they are forbidden from doing this. In verses 15 through 21, the Bible talks about false witnesses. And the danger of false witnesses. Now there are protections in these cases for, for people who are falsely accused. In verse 15, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any or of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses. A matter shall be confirmed. Did you notice in verse 15 that was stated first negatively 
and then reversed and stated positively. In verse 15, a single witness shall not rise up against you. But then the positive statement, the end of verse 15, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter will be confirmed. Now, if you've got good footnotes in your Bible, I would encourage you to look at how frequently that is alluded to in the New Testament. That is alluded to constantly. When a brother is to be withdrawn from uh, you first go and talk to him alone. He doesn't listen. You take one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Matthew 18 and verse 16. But quoted continually in verse 16. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. And what did that say? What is the penalty for being a false witness? You, you bear false witness against your neighbor. It is found out that you were lying. What is the penalty you experience? Whatever the penalty they would have experienced if they had been convicted of that particular crime. If you are bearing false witness against them in a capital crime, you could be put to death as a result of that. Now, think about that. And I want you to think about how reckless in our society charges are made back and forth about this person and that person. It may not ever go to court, but they're intending to do damage to a person's character. If the charges are true, that's one thing. But you better make sure they're true. And brethren are not guilty on those things. In verse 18, there's a careful investigation. In verse 15, there's a need of multiple witnesses. There are all kinds of checks and balances put in to Israelite legal system. But if he is guilty of being a false witness, you purge the evil from among you. In verse 20, the rest will hear and be afraid and never again do such an evil thing among you. What we would say today is it's a deterrent. And if you saw one person punished this way because of crime, because of bearing false witness, it would be a discouragement to do the same. That statement, all Israel will hear and be afraid and never do such a wicked thing, was also made in 1311 and in um, 17 uh, and verse 13 as well. And it says, thus you shall 
uh, verse 21, Deuteronomy 19. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And that's what we mean by lex talionis, where the punishment fits the crime. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That statement in 1921 is made three times in the Old Testament. It's made in Exodus 25, in verses uh, 22 and 23. It is made in Leviticus 24. I believe it's verses 19 and 20 there and here in Deuteronomy 19.21. So, make a false charge against someone. And it is a false charge. And if it's a false charge, it would have ruined them and sunk them. Shouldn't it do the same to the accused? It is a warning to us whether a case ever goes to court or not to be careful about what we say. Be careful what we accuse one another of. What other thoughts do you have? Any other ideas? I know it's the second bell. I had questions back on the blood avenger. It seems seems like is he giving him a pass that if he gets to the person before they get to the city of refuge, that they're in hot pursuit of this person. That if the person's not guilty of, of murder and he gets to him, is the blood avenger still going off scot free? Or if he oh, well, is guilty of murder, assumption like can, the, can the blood avenger kill anybody? I mean, are they really allowed to just do that? Or Okay, they are allowed to execute the guilty. I don't know if I will get all my answers out before everybody comes in. Uh, you read more, Tony, about it in Numbers 35. But I'll try to say just a word about that. I think the... the uh, it is the word redeemer, which is also used to pain a poor, like a, a kinsman was uh, in slavery or something like that. You could buy his way out, and you also had the responsibility to avenge a dear relative. Might, we might get to talk more about it, and I may have to answer that privately. But, but you read more about it in Numbers 35. But, but thank you. I uh, appreciate it.